Hello, and welcome to Acting Up, the podcast that dives deep into the world of TV and film that highlights our people, our culture, and our stories. I'm your host, Courtney Wills, Entertainment Director at The Grio, and this week we're chatting with Aida Rodriguez. Eva Rodriguez is such a fantastic comedian. She's also an actress, producer, writer, and podcaster. You may remember her from her appearance on Last Comic Standing, and now she's showing off her skills in her own hour-long special on HBO Max called Fighting Words. It hit the streamer at the top of the month, and I absolutely loved it. Fighting Words is hilarious. It's a perfect watch for you and your family over this Thanksgiving break. And it really dives into her Puerto Rican and Dominican heritage, serves up tons of laughs that are relatively safe for everybody. And I think we have a lot more to see from her. Aida Rodriguez is so sweet, extremely smart, very real, very relatable, super insightful. I am a fan of hers. I think you probably will be too. And I had a great time getting to know her better during this conversation. Hi there, Aida. Welcome. Fighting Words was so funny and it was just like right on time for me. Did you go to Sundance though before we start? Have you been to Sundance before? Yeah. I met you there. I saw something that you, do you remember? Yeah, it was when Kobe died. It was that, remember when Kobe passed away? Absolutely. What a wild week that was. How crazy since, I mean, Yes, it was you. We did hang out. I saw you perform there. And then Kobe Bryant dies. And we're all there together. Like, is is this real? Yeah, it was devastating, especially when I found out that Gianna was on, on the helicopter. It was and that there were other kids on that. It was just it was just grounding for us in that moment because Sundance can be such a place of, you know, of um you know, hierarchy, like these are the A-list actors and these are the B, these are the people in the movies and they're walking around with security. And then this, this larger than life figure, we lose this larger than life figure to just, you know, just to be grounded and remind ourselves that none of us are exempt from the realities of life, you know? And it was just, it was that a sobering moment for a culture that prides itself in being special, you know? Yep, it really was. And it was so crazy to have to figure out like, we still had a day or two left. So people were doing press, we're supposed to do panels. We're also all reporters. So we are looking for all of the information, trying to you know update our outlets. And yep. also we're all grieving. And we're all, we're around a bunch of people who not only admired Kobe as a fan, but a lot of people who knew him, worked with him, you know, genuinely loved him. So it was just, I will never forget that. Yeah, me either. It was, it was, you know, it was just, it was tough. And, you know, Gianna took me out. It was Gianna thinking about uh, my mom, thinking about Vanessa. I was just, I was so mortified for that woman. And just, it was, we still feel bad, you know? Yeah, you do. And then the other thing about that Sundance is, A, that was the last thing I did. Like, that was the last real place I was before all hell broke loose. But I was also at Sundance reading about this weird virus in Wuhan. Yeah. And texting my family. My dad was en route to China and was like, yo, I think this is 
you know, real. And it was like, calm down, Courtney, take your Xanax, like chill, you know, like <laughs> fall back. And here we are two years later, still here. <laughs> yeah. Who's taking the Xanax now? <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Gosh. So now here we are and we do have something to smile about and that is fighting words. It was so funny. Like what, why that, why did we get this show and why right now? So, you know, I got the special before COVID. I had gotten my deal with HBO Max in 2019 and then COVID hit. But, you know, when it, it's like uh, for us, the, this, this collective trauma that we experienced and specifically people of color, Black people in this country, we were dealing with COVID. We were dealing with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Um, I mean, and the list goes on, right? It doesn't stop there. You know, we were still mourning and grieving Sandra Bland, you know, John Crawford, all of these things happening at one time and watching our communities being ravished by this pandemic, this virus in the worst way. And, you know, me figuring out how I'm going to show up in the world as a stand-up comedian in this moment and try to offer some healing and use my, my, you know, what I have to try to you know, sort some of this stuff out. But it was also very cathartic for me because I was going through it too. And, you know, doing stand-up on Zoom. You know, I'm, I'm in my 40s. I'm a mom. I have two kids. I get my first comedy special. People told me that would never happen because of my gender, my, my ethnicity, and my age. And I get it. And then coronavirus hits and we all shut down. And the the future looks so bleak, you know, I don't, I don't know when this is going to happen. And so I just made a decision to start writing and um, documenting what was happening in the moment. Wow. And you said that it was cathartic for you to do that. And I wonder, was it also scary? Because I think the landscape of Mm-hmm. The public consumption of entertainment obviously drastically changed in this pandemic. And so did the way that the public has been digesting comedy. Yes. You know, um, many times, you know, it's funny because we, we can't have nuanced conversations anymore. Um, you know, people have been so polarized. I think we have a severe void in our country when it comes to education. People don't have uh, quality education and information. And I'm not talking about going to Harvard. I'm just talking about the basic stuff. You know, we got textbooks that are up to date, you know, teachers that care, you know, going into our community specifically. We have all of this stuff happening and the country is in turmoil. And uh, those that are at the top that are, you know, benefiting from that continue to feed into the emotional distress that the people are feeling by injecting like all these untruths. We, it's such a hard time to be a stand-up comedian. And the fact that you're worried more about what I'm saying than you are the superintendent of the school of your kids or the sheriff, you know, that, or the, the loan, the loan officer in your local bank is just like, it blows my mind. Um, and so, yeah, it was very scary. I was like, um, you know, it, it, what I had, what, what I reached was a point of damned if you do, damned if you don't, 
So do you, because either way, somebody's going to have a problem. And at that point I was like, all right, what am I dropping into the solution bucket? Cause at this point, that's all that I, I care about. I don't care about your tweets. I don't care about your, your clever TikTok videos. How is this affecting change to improve the conditions of our people in our communities? And when I say our people, I'm talking about black and brown people because we at the bottom of the food chain. And so I was just like, you know what? You got to brush all of that off and just go do what you got to do and know that what you're doing, you're doing with the intentions of helping people and move forward. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that you felt like when, as you were writing this time around, a place you would have gone that you didn't, or, you know, a joke or a subject you would have tackled that you just kind of were like, meh, maybe not right now. No, I think this was just what I wanted to say in this moment. And, um, you know, some editing did take place. Of course, my set is a set that doesn't belong to me. This is not, you know, ultimately it is the property of HBO Max. Yeah. There are a lot of people who are involved in the decision-making. They were very generous in allowing me to say what I wanted to say. They really didn't edit me. But, you know, I, I wanted to focus on this thing. I like to tell stories that have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I like to stay in the in the world of what I'm talking about. And so for me, it was just more true to my form of comedy in terms of just staying there. But I started writing what I'm going to do for the next special and what I'm going to tackle there. You know, and there were some jokes that I had written during this period that I was like, this is not for this special. But I was afraid of every joke I told because <laughs> at this point, anything can trigger anybody in this moment. And all they need is a platform to take you down. Right. So it wasn't a pleasant experience, you know, that if I'm being honest, it was just, ooh, I'm going to, this is, you know, I want to make sure that, this, you know, I, I'm always like, do people think I really am trying to be mean? Like, do they really think that I'm trying to just be demeaning or do they understand what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. And um, and after a while, you just got to release that because it is what it is, you know? Well, there's no way around it. I mean, look at the incomparable Dave Chappelle and what he's dealing with and the nuanced conversations and like the passion and fury on both sides mm -hmm. of opinion on that special. You have to figure out what it is that you're trying to say. And one thing that I will say is that I'm not the spokesperson for any group. Yeah. I'm only speaking on behalf of myself and telling my truth. I have observations about people but I am not the mouthpiece for any group of people because I can't be, right? So I've just committed to telling my story and saying the way I see things and hope that we can have conversations about it. But I don't, I'm not qualified to speak on behalf of any group of people, including whatever groups I belong to. You know, I can't even speak on behalf of single mothers. I can't even be, you know, like I just can't. Like all I can do is just say, this is, how I see it. And some of it, you just got to let it roll off your back. Yeah. So one thing I love so much about you is how you weave your culture throughout your comedy. And I feel like that in itself is kind of like a revolutionary act because even something mm -hmm. as simple as how you identify yourself here culturally today you know, you call yourself a Black woman, you call yourself Afro-Latina, and we still have this inner kind of dialogue amongst Latinx countries, amongst, you know, I'm, my dad is Black, my mom is Mexican. Is that Afro-Latina? Because my whole life, I've just been 
mixed two things, right? I mean, just so much infighting and bullshit at a time where things like hair texture and colorism were supposedly trying to dismantle and reframe. Like we're still fighting amongst each other. And then you've got the screen, you know, you've got in the Heights where we're like, yay in the Heights. And then we're like, why does everybody look the same in this movie? What is it like to go in and be so sure of where you fall in this and and bring laughter to issues that for me resonate as someone who navigates a lot of the things that you talk about there? You know, I think the beautiful thing about identity is that you, um, it's something that's personal, right? Because everybody's always trying to tell everybody what they are. Yeah. You know, like I'm not transracial, you know, I've been called the N word so many times in my life in front of my son who is now, you know, in his twenties, but when he was four and I had to explain what that was, you know, in San Diego at a gas station, I'm holding my two babies and these white people just pull up in a truck and they're like, you still, because I was driving a BMW and they were like, you still a FN, you know, N word, B B word. And I was just like, I was so furious. I was like, I wanted to, you know, and it's interesting to claim, uh, and I understand why so many people feel like, why y'all want to be black now? Y'all ain't want to be black before, you know, because there is this thing that I, I claim my Afro indigenous roots because I feel like history, society, America has embedded this shame and embarrassment of where we come from by, you know, making Africa, you know, our African ancestors caricatures with this, you know, idea that it's uncivilized and underdeveloped and indigenous people as being dumb and weak. And those are our glorious ancestors, right? And I claim them proudly because I am because they were. And it's just, I want to reframe that. You know, I talk about Blackness because in my community, you know, we're having conversations that were happening 20 years ago or 30 years ago when school days came out about colorism and the erasure of darker skinned Black people, which is real. And so I understand why some of the dark skinned Black people are like, we don't want to identify with you. That's caused us so much pain. But at the end of the day, I understand that and I respect it. All of that being said, my story matters, my life matters, my reality matters, yes. and, and it's just as valid as everybody else's. That does not undo the realities of colorism in this country and abroad. You know, anti-Blackness has always been framed as, as being a Latinx thing or a Latino thing. Anti-Blackness is a global issue that lives within the the Black American community and beyond. It is real in India, it is real in China, it is real in the continent of Africa, the motherland, it is real everywhere. Dominicans are not the only Latinx people who have anti-Black, you know, values. And, you know, when we frame it, let's frame it properly. The Dominican Republic has a history that was connected to murder from their president when it, with, that dealt with blackness. So there's trauma there, but, you know, and it doesn't make it all right. But what we need to do is start aiming our weapons at the systems that have created, enabled, and continue to perpetuate these ideals. And that's what I have a problem with. 
So if a darker skinned Latina doesn't want to be identified with me, I get it. I understand it. I'm going to fight for both of us because at the end of the day, you know, in the black American community, Halle Berry doesn't stop being black because Viola Davis is black. And Ooh, say that again. Are you, are you kidding me? Yeah, but the, and you know what I'm saying? But the reality of it is, is that those conversations which are toxic and take us backwards are the great distraction from us having solidarity, equity, and justice. And so for me, I rather focus on how we're going to fix this and how we're going to get what is rightfully ours and with respectfully understanding the pain that's underneath all of this, but always remembering who the real enemy is, you know, and that's what I struggle with. Literally same. And it's with this conversation that we're having about Afro-Latinas, where it's also in the conversation of colorism, period, within the Black community. It's like, we're all literally the victims of the construction that allows us to be battling each other instead of the real enemy, like you said. And, you know, I mean, there's so much media out around this. Like right now, Passing with Tessa Thompson is mm. hitting Netflix. We've got Disney's Encanto coming up from Lin-Manuel Miranda. And that, I will say, I mean, obviously it's animated programming for children and families, but that is based in Colombia, And that family looks like my family. It looks like real people do different shades, different hair textures, dark skin tones, light skin tones, long hair, braids, curls, everything you see in this cartoon. And, you know, it feels like baby steps, but it feels like steps because I never could have imagined seeing a family like that in a Disney film as a kid. Yeah, you know, I think it's important to use your privilege to create opportunities for those who don't have the things that you do. And I don't just mean that money. I mean, like me as someone of a lighter hue, I'm going to create space for someone that's darker than me. And not because I want props or tweets or because I could care less about that stuff, but because I think it's important to do that. You know, even when you mentioned in the Heights, I just want to hold the space for Corey Hawkins, who everybody erased and forgot that showed up as a black, dark-skinned American man that was a, a character that was positive, you know, that showed up in a way that I was so happy and proud of. And, you know, a lot of, you know, my people who were, you know, upset about the lack of representation with darker hues on in the movie, but let's not erase him because he was one of the leads in that film and he showed up beautifully. And I just thought it was unfortunate because in the middle of all of that stuff where those arguments are valid, he got swept away and we just didn't, we just didn't show him the love that I thought he should have gotten for just showing up on screen in a way that I think is positive. I think that's a really interesting point that you're making about Corey. And I remember feeling a mix of emotions about the reactions to In the Heights and the attention that it was getting. But I felt, you know, we talked to Corey and we talked to him as a Black man playing a Black man in this film about Afro-Latinos and seeing very little, if not any, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans that were Black you know, that presented as Black. And who I felt got erased there was Leslie, who does identify as Afro-Latina, who happens to be 
50 shades lighter than her siblings are, you know, and was like, yeah, I didn't see them there. But I'm like, but what about her? Leslie is a black woman with very light skin, identifies as black. And we're like, she's not in there. She's a thing and a moment and a victory too. I absolutely would have liked to see people who look like the people who actually live in the Heights in that movie representing themselves. You know, Lynn had his reasons for not reflecting that, not feeling like that's what he absorbed. And, you know, I mean, it would have been great, but yes, like, is it any less of an achievement for everyone else in the project? No, I think it's about like, you know, we have to keep pushing and keep chipping away. And then here we go, six months later, we've got Encanto and I'm telling you, there's a whole bunch of black kids and people in that film that he made. So yeah, and you know, the thing is that we're radioactive. There's a lot of pain. I can't speak to the pain of a dark-skinned Black Latina. I can't. And watching it over and over again, my life, the erasure, you know, the mistreatment, the jokes, it's been it's just as harmful to everybody because when you got six little kids in a room and you are employing that type of rhetoric and that hateful, you know, ideology, it's affecting all the children, right? All of them. It's not good for any of them because now your self-esteem is rated on this scale that's not real and not good. And everybody is suffering and struggling as a result of it. What I will say is this, is that I like to hold people accountable. I think it is important to hold people accountable. I try not to burn people down personally that I think are working towards a solution. And if I think if the person is egregious and horrible and you you don't believe that they're doing them, then then I understand why some people would do that. But I really felt like, and through my own experience with working on my own projects, understanding that when you get on an email, you get on a Zoom, it's 35 people on there. It's not just you, you know, and yeah, Lynn is at a place where he has a lot of opportunities and yes, he's doing it. I just, you know, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell dark-skinned Latinos that they don't have the right to be angry for being invisible and stuff. But my response to that, instead of getting on Twitter beat in Twitter beefs and fights, was when I did my documentary, I said, I want a Black woman to direct it. That's Latina. So I went and got Nadia Hallgren, you know. I wanted to show Palos and Bomba Plena in Puerto Rico and Haiti. I mean, in Haiti, in the Dominican Republic, and show, you know, the people of different hues of both countries. Yeah. I wanted to show representation. I didn't want to show children begging in the streets, you know. Like, I was like, I'm going to show my people looking beautiful and dignified. And that's my response to that is I'm going to do it. I, I don't need props for it. You know, I don't need praise for it. All I want you to do is watch and see these people and how beautiful they are. Those are my people. And that's how I respond to that stuff. I just go, I just like, what do I do to fix this? Instead of just being on Twitter, trying to burn people down and get into arguments and all of it is just a moot point. Cause you just in on social media, going back and forth with a bunch of people who don't have nothing to do. Aida, who makes you laugh? Like, what do you watch for fun? Like, what has entertained you throughout, God, these now 20 plus months of madness? Oh, man. So I, I'm a Star Wars head. So I watched Mandalorian. Atlanta is probably one of the shows that I've watched in the last few years. I go back and watch Atlanta. The jail episode is my favorite. <laughs> It's not my favorite episode. It's the episode that makes me laugh the most, right? Because okay. 
It was so crazy. The Cat Williams, Florida Man episode also makes me laugh so much. But I do love to watch Atlanta. I watched, what did I watch that was so funny that I was like, I can't believe how funny this show. I've been watching silly stuff, like just escapism, you know, like I don't want to watch nothing that was too deep because we live in watching the headlines all the time. What did I watch? Your silly shit, like your ridiculous, embarrassing escapism things. I'll tell you mine right now, but you tell me. I mean, I watched Only Murders in the Building because Martin Short made me laugh the whole time. It was hilarious. Mm -hmm. I watch, my kids and I will watch the chef show where it, uh, he goes and helps struggling restaurants. What's the name? Yeah, Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay, because it's it, we laugh. We're like, yo, this dude is hysterical. We watched the season of The Bachelor where Matt James was on it. We ended up watching it. I don't watch that kind of stuff, but I watched that season with my kids. Were you yelling at the TV? Every single week. <laughs> <laughs> what a shit show that was. <laughs> Because you know, you know, the anxiety you have is because you know exactly what's going to happen. So yeah. no matter how much you think this may go this way, you're like, you know, exactly what's going to happen. And it was just, it's like, you know, it was just like a guilty pleasure though. I found myself looking for things that I wouldn't normally watch because I feel like my headspace was in places it wasn't normally in. And I just wanted to go somewhere else. Um, and that's what's so beautiful about comedy, I think, sometimes, you know, like it is, I think comedy has the ability to shine a light um, and reframe really important, really impactful, really deep issues that we're all kind of struggling with collectively. But it also just allows you to laugh at silly, stupid things because mm -hmm. you can. And I think that that's such like a necessary thing. I think comedians are so, so necessary, especially when things are bad and when when people are divided because if we're all laughing like maybe we can maybe we can find common ground if we can share a laugh yeah I think so it, it is definitely one of the places where we meet and you know like I watch the rest of development like to me funny is funny but when I watch you know one of the shows that made me laugh the most I think was episodes like I really think episodes is really funny smart and humor that I really can appreciate. But I, I do think humor is one of the things that brings us together, music. But I just think that everything's been polarized and politicized. It kind of takes the joy out of art sometimes because now you have political parties claiming artists and artists belong to us all, right? So that's the, that's the point of the artists that you share with everybody, not just the people who think exactly like you. Yeah, and that's that's been what's been painful for me is to watch people hijack certain artists for the, you know, like we we've absolved people of their responsibility and their accountability through this this moment and this movement. Like, you know, like I I, I was saying the other day, like, sure, don't listen to R. Kelly's music. Sure, don't stream his stuff. But the real punishment for R. Kelly for what he did should be jail. Mm -hmm. not Twitter jail. You know what I mean? Like, that's like what, like we get so caught up because some people really bank on social media being so real for them. Like, this is it. This is it. We're going to take a, uh oh, we about to go to Twitter. We about to, but like, when do, you know, I would like people who have sexually assaulted people to go to jail for sexual assault. That for me is the, is the actual punishment than somebody saying, I, um, you know, taking a person, doing a thread on Twitter. 
if that thread on Twitter is going to lead to that person going to jail, I'm all for it. Otherwise, it's just rhetoric. And so we've gotten, the, it's become the scapegoat, you know, and I'm tired of it. It's so exhausting. It is. It really is quite exhausting. And like you said, at the start of this conversation, it's like, we can't have actual real thought provoking debates and conversations anymore where people's opinions differ. It's like, you know, this tragedy with Travis Scott, like, can we all agree first? Nobody like wanted this to happen. Like these people are dead and they, you know, that is a tragedy first. Nobody set out for this to happen. And it's so hard to say things like that when the first priority is like assigning the blame and like getting that that person, you know, giving them the hell that they need to pay while this is all still going on. You know, it feels crazy, but like, don't say that or else you don't have sympathy for these lives lost. Yeah, that was scary. I mean, the I, I, um, yeah, I was looking at that whole situation though, and I was just like, it gave me anxiety just watching that many people. Yeah. Cause I'm like, where's COVID right now? Right. Where is, but I, I it gave me anxiety. Ugh. I don't know, honestly, I don't know what anybody was thinking. I know people are just so tired of being locked up and wearing masks and all of that stuff. So I get it. Why? But I, the whole thing just gave me anxiety. I was just sitting there like, what that was today that was yesterday like did what's going on like oh uh, how many people are sick you know these uh why, why is everyone outside together no math it also made me think of um selena remember that yeah. part of the movie when they're pushing on the stage and i think she comes out and sings like Gomola Flood and they all calm down it was like yeah. that's how a lot of those <laughs> concerts in in latin america happen and you know i was just really like I just started thinking about it and I was like, wow, this is, this is a, this is intense. This is a moment. Somebody's got to live with this for the rest of their life. And I just don't, I'm, I'm not the person to judge people because I just, I'm so imperfect. So I'm not going to sit there and write a thing piece about who is evil. But I do want to say one thing is that we, we looked at that and we were like, you know, because one thing that really bothered me was I saw a lot of tweets of people saying, you know, look at Astro World. this, you know, the guy from Lincoln Park would stop the concert to do this and that. And I was like, OK, I, I see your racism. I see your racism coming through. Right. But then I looked at that audience and there was a bunch of white people out there. Yeah, it was a bunch of white people out there. And so while they were trying to frame this as a black event and it being problematic because it was a black event, there's a bunch of teenage white kids out there. And so, you know, yes. my heart goes out to everybody who lost their lives. I am trying my best not to go on social media and judge people because when every, every time I see people looking with me on social media and I go look at their stuff, I'm like, <laughs> I should do a screenshot of this. Look at this. Look at what this person did this. Everybody's cancelable. Everybody. And so I'm just trying my best to just be the best that I can be instead of focusing on who's fucking up. Cause I'm trying to not fuck up as much. <laughs> like that's, that's my goal is just trying my best to be the best person that I can be. And that's, that's hard. It really is. It really is hard. There really isn't the space for that. And I just can't imagine a kind of artist who has to be feeling that more than comedians right now. 
It is petrifying, you know, like, especially when you see someone like Dave Chappelle catching it, you're like, it, I'm definitely don't stand a shot, you know, yeah. like, and my, you know, my special came out November 4th. So my special came out after the closer. So I was like, they don't, they don't like me on fire <laughs> because I, I don't have the clout. I don't have the power. I don't have the money. I don't have the gender. You know what I mean? Like in comedy, which is a male dominated sport. I am not at the top of the food chain. I am not the highest paid comedian in the land. So I have to be extra careful because they can take me down. And I, you know, and that's my livelihood. You know, like I can't stop doing comedy and chill because I don't have it like that. So Mm -hmm. I just, it's just such a, the radioactive place is it's a landmine everybody's on edge everybody some people don't even want to do stand-up right now they're like I'm not doing it I don't blame them um Aida it has been such a pleasure to talk to you we're connected that's because you know and listen my daughter is my I'm Puerto Rican and Dominican my my ex-husband is um Black American and Native and Indigenous and my daughter always tells me that she doesn't claim being Afro-Latina because she doesn't feel like that is the group that she identifies with. And I think that that's just okay. You know, she's like, I'm Black and Latina. And mm-hmm. so that's her identity. And I think that, I, I, I think it's cool that she identifies with whatever. She don't want to be part of nobody's group. She's like, you know, that group is toxic. I'm actually a Black woman walking about this earth. And I'm also going to eat arroz con gandules and I'm going to listen to Johnny Ventura and nobody can take that away from me. And so when you said that, what you said, it just reminded me of my baby because she's like, you know, I'm not I'm not going to let anybody tell me what I am and what I'm not. You belong to us just like you belong to black Americans. You belong to us all. And that's why solidarity is important, because you matter just as much as everybody else. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. That was so sweet. That made my day. Uh, talking to you has been great. I really enjoyed this conversation. You take care. All right. You too, my love. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Acting Up. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, comments, and suggestions to podcasts at thegrio.com. Acting Up is brought to you by The Griot, an executive produced by Courtney Wills and produced by Cameron Blackwell. For more with me and Acting Up, check us out on Instagram at actingup.pod.